things to say next week, so I just can come up with something today. <laughs> I try. <clears throat> I think many of us grow weary of the emphasis in our culture of being politically correct. Try not to offend anybody, but it's often caused greater problems as our country plunges into moral decline and has greater and greater enemies. And what's true in the political arena of our culture is really kind of gone into the church as well. However, the book of Jude was written to protect true believers from false Christians who had infiltrated the church. They were actually denying or distorting critical doctrines of the faith. And it's for this reason God moved Jude to pen this letter that we're going to study today and next week. In this letter, believers are urged to contend for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. In other words, believers are called upon to fight for the truth of the faith that is under attack, and it is under attack. Sadly, those who do stand up for the true message of the gospel are often considered narrow-minded, unloving, intolerant, unkind, etc. There is a failure to see the urgency from this message from the Lord to address error that has crept into the church. So what was taking place at the time that Jude wrote this letter has been taking place in every generation since, and certainly today. There are countless radio and TV preachers and authors of books that proclaim a different gospel message than that of the Bible. They have polluted the purity of the faith. Any experience is held up as the measure of truth above scripture. Messages are proclaimed denying that he needs to be Lord of your life or have authority. In truth, you know what, you can really likely find any Bible teacher who is going to accommodate a lifestyle that you want to live. So that way you can continue in a, sin, in a sinful lifestyle while professing to know Christ. You just look hard enough, you will find somebody to agree with you. Therefore, those who take a stand for what scripture declares are viewed, as I said, religious extremists or certainly loveless. I've been greatly helped in my preparation today by a number of excellent books that I've read as well as messages from a special man that I really admire. <laughs> I don't, you know. Anyways, so the important truth from the book of Jude, this is such a critical book at this time. We begin with the writer to the letter who is Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. There were lots of men named Jude in the first century. However, this Jude was the brother of James. And everybody reading this would have known immediately who James was, the half-brother of Jesus. James was a pillar in the church, as Paul talks about in Galatians. And we saw him in our study of Acts as leading the council regarding justification by faith alone. He is also the author of the inspired letter named after him. We know from Matthew 13 that Jesus had four half-brothers who did not believe that he was the Messiah during his earthly ministry. However, after the resurrection, Jude, like his other brothers, believed, and he was in the upper room with the other believers on the day of Pentecost, which we studied in Acts. It's very interesting that Jude doesn't ident identify himself as Jesus' half-brother, but rather the brother of James. This is likely because he never wanted to convey to anybody some special 
advantage or privilege because he was the half-brother of Jesus. With a humble heart, he simply refers to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, like every other believer is. He seems to have been an itinerant preacher who ministered to various people in the early church. And who was the letter to? To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That is a powerful verse on eternal security right there. These are likely Jewish believers that he is writing to as he refers to so much Old Testament Jewish history that Jewish believers would have been familiar with. So in this very brief introduction, we're giving deep theological truth about the security of believers in their salvation. The called are those who have responded to salvation at a certain point in their lives because of God's gracious choice and call on their life. There is a general call to all people to come to Christ. That's what Jesus said, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Every believer is called to Christ. Those who are called will come, according to Romans 8.30. Everyone who is called is also beloved in God the Father. In the Greek construction, it means that God loves his own in the past. He continues to love his own in the present. And as God certainly loves all of the people he's created, Jude is talking about a special love here that God the Father has for his own child. This is a permanent love that will never let go. And notice that we are kept for or kept by Jesus Christ. Christ will never abandon his own. He keeps us, and that is clearly taught in John chapter 10, the Good Shepherd, as well as John 17. In verse 2, Jude mentions three blessing, blessings known to every single believer. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. God continues to give all that we need to sustain us in difficult times. God gives us his mercy in the form of strength for every situation that we face in our life. He also gives peace from God. That's a calmness in the midst of distress, the peace we have at God being right with him and the peace that he brings to our hearts and minds and guards it, according to Philippians 4.7. And on top of all this, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts so that we continue to love him even when pressure and tension squeezes us in. So in this short introduction, Jude reminds all believers they are secure in Christ God is sovereignly called each of his children to himself. He loves us, he protects us, and he will not let us go. So now we see the reason Jude wrote this important letter in verses 3 and 4. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so Jude begins, and he's changed direction from what he originally was going to write, something about our common salvation that he had planned to write because God redirected him. Jude loved the people he was writing to, and he was writing a really hard letter to them about the infiltration of people into the church. Jude calls them, who he was writing to, his beloved. They were dear friends to him. 
expresses how precious they were to him. And he wants them to know they are precious to him because he has some very hard things to say. The, these verses I just read really give us the theme and the whole purpose for this short little letter. He urges these believers to fight for the faith, contend for the faith, agonize for the faith, to overcome the opponents who attack it. This is not just a call for first century readers of this letter to, from Jude. This is a call to all Christians to engage in the battle for the faith. So what is the faith? It is the gospel message about Christ and salvation. It is the apostles' doctrine that we saw in Acts 2.42. It is the entire body of truth taught by the apostles that was once for all handed down to the saints. This is a critical statement because it tells us that uh, the doctrines that define our faith never change. They have once and for all been delivered to the saints. Jude is saying that once all of scripture was completed, the last book being Revelation, uh, written by John in approximately 90 AD, there have been no more new revelation of books from God to his people. As one Bible teacher put it, the faith refers to the content of Christianity, the revelation of God, the whole body of teaching that makes up God's word. And this revelation was delivered once and for all in the past and is complete in the Bible. No new revelation is being added. The content of the faith was finalized at a point of time in history and is unchangeable, end of quote. This is the reason the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us through his son. I bring this up because it's so critical we understand that God is not giving new addendums and revelation today. All false religions or religions in the umbrella of Christianity that declare they have additional special books from God that arrived after scripture was complete are the complete opposite of what we are told here in the book of Jude. There are also churches that teach that God continues to give new revelation through those who have supernatural gifts or visions. Others attack the completeness of the word of God by saying we really can't really understand it. All truth is relative and therefore we just can try to objectively study scripture but not really know what it means. Others say they have the right to, think they have the right to distort scripture by making it more modern in its appeal to the culture they're in. So let's redefine marriage, let's redefine what is immoral according to the Bible. But Jude, as God's spokesman, tells us there is no new revelation. Scripture can be understood and obeyed. It is not subject to change because of the society we live in. Scripture is God's once and for all revelation of truth about his son. And it is every believer's responsibility to defend it when it comes under attack. And the truth is, you can't really defend something if you don't really know what it is. So, this means we need to have a clear understanding of the essential doctrines of the faith and the meaning of the atonement of Christ, his resurrection, the depravity of man, grace, faith, God's justice, the person and work of the Spirit, sanctification, the authority of the inspiration of Scripture, and on it goes. 
I'm thankful that each of you have made time out of your busy lives to come to a Bible study and to be in the Word, to learn God's Word, so you know it better. That's the only way we can grow and be aware of error. We cannot water down the truth proclaimed by God in His Word. When sharing with truth, the truth of the Gospel or just having a discussion with family or friends, we ought to have the courage to speak up when it is misrepresented and misinterpreted. Paul wrote to Timothy in Second Timothy 4, warning of a time when in the church people will turn away from the truth of sound doctrine, wanting to only hear things that make them feel good. Jude is warning believers that apostates had infiltrated their church, and this is a serious, serious threat. So in verse 4, Jude describes apostates as those who claim to have accepted the grace of God in salvation, but then they distort God's grace and actually turn it into a license to sin. So who are these apostates? They're described for us in verse 4. They are deceitful. They have crept in unnoticed. They pretend to be real Christians. They talk like real Christians, but they are not. They pretend they're true believers. They, they say all the right things, but in reality, they undermine the authority of God's word. We're not talking about minor differences of interpretation about points that are not pertinent to salvation and matters like that, but we're talking about issues that are critical to the gospel message being salvation by grace through faith alone. All believers are to contend for the faith. Apostates not only deny and distort the faith, but they do so in a very subtle and deceptive way. You know, angel, uh, Satan comes as an angel of light, not obvious. Satan is a deceiver, and he's the one who has planted these different doctrines of demons into various churches and Christian ministries. In Matthew 13, Jesus says, apostates are going to be with us until the end of the age when they are finally judged. So we need to be alert to the fact that they creep into church undetected, they sound sincere, they gain acceptance by other believers, they plant doubts in people's minds, they try to update or change doctrine that they think is obsolete, they are Satan's plants, they are tares among the wheat in order to introduce doctrines of demons. So we shouldn't be surprised by their presence because they were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Their condemnation was written about in scripture uh, as scripture talks about these people from long ago. The nation of Israel had this problem with false prophets in their time and today in the church heresy continues to sneak in. We need to understand what we should be looking for, so Jude describes for us the behavior and the character of apostates. And not only are they deceitful, they are devoid of godliness. They live just how they want to live. They are not under the authority of God's word and his standards. They may appear to be kind and gentle and tolerant and persuasive, but what drives them is their own lusts and their own sensual desires. Immorality, personal ambition, arrogance, pride, greed, all hide behind pious-sounding people with high titles of respect. They act one way in public, but their private life is totally different for as far as what they may be watching on the internet, their anger, or their pride. It proves they are devoid of the Spirit. On top of all that, they distort the grace of God, telling others that they can live in a way that makes them happy 
giving them a license to do what the flesh desires. Second Peter 2.18 talks about them, that they invite others to follow them in their sinful behavior. They speak of a religion where you can do what you want, and in reality, they are slaves to their own lusts. So what are some modern day examples of this? Well, the truth of the gospel is that our salvation is secure. So therefore, you can count on those who would want to take and twist this wonderful doctrine to say, therefore you can live how you want because you just have to tell Jesus you're sorry when you're done. You can continue doing this because his grace is sufficient. You just keep on. And scripture teaches that those who follow Christ want to live godly in Christ Jesus. They want to honor and please the Lord. They hate their sin. They're, they're sad when they fall in sin. There are Bible teachers that distort the grace of God by saying that you can trust him to save you, but he doesn't have to be Lord over your life. If you just say this prayer, if you just raise your hand, if you just go and kneel at the altar and come forward, you will be saved. It doesn't matter how you live after that. You've got your ticket to heaven. You're secure. That You're good. So live how you choose to live, and Christ will forgive you. Apostates don't submit their lives to Christ's authority and lordship. They live by their own sensual desires. Apostates also deny the lordship of Jesus. They distort the grace of God, as I just said, saying it's okay to be involved in sinful lifestyles. And Jude refers to Jesus Christ as our only master. Think of it. He is the master of those who have called on him to be saved. He is the Lord Jesus, speaking of him as one with authority and honor. But apostates live as they see fit while saying all the right words that they love Jesus and they're following him too. So please don't be deceived by people no matter how wonderfully and kindly they speak about Jesus. If they are not in submission to his word and his lordship, and what they say, they are not genuine believers. Make sure you attend a church where the leaders are biblically qualified according to First and Second Timothy and Titus. That is the word handed down to us from God. And then look into your own heart. Do any of these points describe you or how you think? Are you part of a church yet you live the way you want to live? The word of God is not what dictates how you spend your money what you watch on TV? Have you come up with your own belief system that validates your experience rather than holding whatever you experience up to the light of scripture to determine what is valid and true? Well, next, Jude gives the example that God will judge apostates. And so he cites three examples in the past where that's exactly what he did. Now, I desire to remind you Though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way in these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example of undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. 
not going to talk about this being used as a proof text for demons having sex with women, blah, 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 from the book of Genesis. It's not even, I don't believe that's what this is saying, but it's not pertinent to the point Jude is making. So I'm not even going to discuss that. We don't have time. Jude speaks about God's judgment on past apostates, making it clear that God is going to judge present-day apostates as well. So he begins with the Israelites who were judged in the wilderness. Though that whole generation of Israelites were delivered, they walked through the dry Red Sea. It's the wall of waters on either side of them. They did not believe or submit to God. They were characterized by grumbling, complaining. They ate the manna every day miraculously. They had the pillar of fire at night, the cloud leading them, water coming out of a rock, and on and on it goes. God's power on display continually. And they continued to have a hardness of heart as they were involved in idolatry and unbelief, and that culminated when they refused to go into the land of Canaan. And the only two spies who said, no, we can do this, Joshua and Caleb, and the rest said, no, we can't do that. They're really big people, and it's really scary. <clears throat> and at that point, God's response was that they were condemned to wander the next 40 years in the desert until they all died. That was the judgment. And this is the same sin as apostates. They know the truth. They've seen the power of God at work. They profess to believe, but in their hearts, they are guilty of unbelief, just like that generation. Then the angels were judged. Jude speaks about angels that rebelled with Lucifer, and they abandoned their proper abode. Many have been kept in bonds under darkness, awaiting their final sentence by God. In Revelation 12, we read that, a third of the angels, holy angels, followed Lucifer in that rebellion, that I will be like God. Angels that once lived in heavenly places saw the glory of God, the throne, all of the amazing sights and the glories of heaven, joined in that rebellion. And many of them have been condemned to darkness and prisoners in change awaiting their final punishment. Obviously not are all not all are there, just look around. They are doing the work of stirring up the nations and telling people to murder and on and on it goes. And you recall when the demoniac was healed by Jesus, the demons, many of them in that man, said, Don't send us to the to the place the abyss. We don't want to go here. We want to just send us to the pigs. And that's what happened. But the point Judah's making is that God punished apostate angels. So he will punish apostate people who act like these angels who were full of arrogance and pride and selfishness. Then he cites the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. This example of apostates might be like, how are they apostate? You know, we're talking about this sinful group of cities. What I read was, was helpful in giving insight that when you realize this was only 450 years after the flood, as one author explained, at least one of Noah's sons, Shem, would have still been living, according to Genesis 11. And since this was about 100 years after Noah's death, uh, people would have known about his years of preaching God's truth. He died, his son lived on, so we're not that far removed. People would have known the truth. Lot came into that city. Believe it or not, he was a righteous man. We wouldn't know that without Hebrews. But anyways, people in that city knew truth about God, and they rejected it. And that is seen in their downward spiral and their immoral behavior. Their rejection is seen in chapter 19, 
culminating when two angels visit who look like men and they come to Lot's house. They're there to really rescue Lot and his family. And the men of the city are so obsessed to have sexual relations with the two men who are visiting Lot. So their lust was so powerful, it's amazing that when struck with blindness, that didn't even deter them. They just kept trying to grasp for the door. It makes most sense to understand that Jude is saying that the similarity between the Israelites in the Old Testament, the fallen angels in Sodom and Gomorrah, is not their particular sin he's making a point of here, rather the fact that all three of these receive their punishment of eternal fire. Fire and brimstone destroying the cities is mentioned 23 times in the Bible because it is an example of how God judges apostates and how he judges sin. So then he goes into our last couple verses, how to discern who is an apostate in verses 8 through 10. They are dreamers, verse 8. This, these type of people live in a dream world really of unreality. They turn away from the truth and they end up feeding their minds with error and their egos are inflated. And in their confused state of mind, they are involved in all sorts of evil behavior. They are immoral, verse 8 says, yet in the same way these men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh. They use their bodies for immorality. He isn't saying that it's just limited to the apostates, obviously back at the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's speaking broadly that there is some form of sexual behavior that is outside the will of God, which is sex within marriage. Some type of deviant sexual behavior often is seen and apostates, and you know, who did they prey on? Vulnerable people, be it children, women, other men. They don't believe they are accountable to the Lordship of Christ to live morally, and so they do what their sinful hearts want to do, and many follow in their sensuality. Then they reject divine authority. Apostates deny any authority of the Lord over their lives. They can't stand that Jesus Christ or the Word of God should be something they have to submit to. Scripture is often altered or watered down or twisted so that they can validate their sinful lifestyle. They convince themselves and others that they won't have to give an account to God for how they live or that they're forgiven anyways. Because they reject divine authority, they also reject God's ordained authority. So like government, church leaders, parents, teachers, police, employers, Jude mentions that they revile angelic majesties. They speak evil of them. They despise holy angels, who are God's messengers, who are part of giving of the law that God gave to Israel. There's no understanding even as they show disrespect for all the angelic beings. We see this so often when people are yelling at Satan and telling him where to go and what to do as if he's under their authority speaking to him. No one is ever to show disrespect to any angelic creatures who are more powerful than people. Jude then gives the example of Michael the archangel, the highest holy angel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, he did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. This is a reference to a non-biblical book called The Assumption of, Mo Assumption of Moses, which was not inspired. But within there is a story there about Michael, 
disputing with Satan over Moses' body, which was true, and that is why God has it in the book of Jude. Satan, for some reason, wanted the dead body of Moses. Maybe it was to lead into more idolatry by making his body a shrine for Israel. For whatever reason, Satan wanted this body, and during the dispute, Michael refused to speak against Satan. He would not do this with his own authority. Yet Michael is the mightiest of all angels. The arrogance of apostates that rebuke or insult good angels or speak out against any angel, they know nothing about what they're speaking, and it shows how arrogant they really are. But these men revile the things which they do not understand. All they know about is their own instincts that are similar to unreasoning animals. And their fleshly lusts and immoral behavior will condemn them forever to the lake of fire. Such men and women are in our churches. They live in the world of their own dreams. They are immoral. They reject divine authority. And with arrogance, they blaspheme angels. We must be wise and discerning in who we listen to, ladies. Don't let such teachers suck you into the error they so boldly proclaim before their congregations of tens of thousands. You see pride and you see arrogance, that should be a huge red flag, beware. <clears throat> they think that they don't have to be under the authority of anyone but themselves, and that is a huge red flag. You know what, if you've come to faith in Christ, if you've trusted Jesus and that his death was for you and your sin when he hung on the cross and you've called on him to save you, then you are called to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to us. Doesn't mean that we're mean, doesn't mean that we're rude to anybody, but we must stand up and speak the truth that countless men and women have given their life for. I pray that we will have the courage to speak for the truth, even if it's politically incorrect within Christendom. We have a higher calling. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You know he whispers that truth to you when you hear something that just doesn't ring true. It doesn't seem right, even if you can't put your finger on it. Make sure you are his child and that you have not been deceived by the endless barrage of false teachers that have big smiles on their face that say they love Jesus and they misrepresent his word and deny the truth once and for all handed down. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this little book, probably so overlooked and packed with so much truth that is so relevant to the world we live in a world full of deception and where Christianity has been just immersed in error and we have non-discerning people who don't recognize us. Lord, I pray that we would learn from what we have studied and we would be wise and we would have courage to speak up for the truth and the standards of holiness in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.